right. Well, thanks for joining us this morning. And uh, I wanted to start uh, just by kind of opening it up to see if anybody has uh, any uh, any questions that you'd like to uh, uh, discuss a bit this morning uh, before I get into anything in particular, just kind of open it up. So the floor is open and the speaker's plugged in. So we'll give it a minute or two since this is kind of <laughs> throw thrown at you all of a sudden. Give me a chance to have a bit more coffee. I have a simple question. Oh, good. Um, just for um, kind of getting into the mode of the practice that we do here, is there a particular resource that's recommended for home study? Well, yeah, the practice we do here because they're they're. Uh, different aspects of it. One thing that's on our website, uh, just in terms of some basic forms about the bowing as you enter in and, and uh, of, a, of a more formal nature. And it's actually uh, uh, presented by my teacher, Mike Newhall, who until uh, the last year or so was the Abbott guiding teacher at Jacoji Zen Center out in California. So it was actually filmed there, mm -hmm. presenting him with uh, one of the students there, uh, kind of receiving that kind of instruction. And I, it's in either two or three parts. So that would be one place, that might be a good starting place because uh, Chris here, this is like your third time with us. Yeah. So, and, this would be uh, uh, a very appropriate place uh, type of introduction for you, I think. Okay. And since it's Jacoji, which is our home temple, mm -hmm. you're definitely getting it from the viewpoint of our particular lineage, not that there's that much difference between various Zen lineages. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but there's that. And then, uh, you know, uh, beyond that, uh, and, and just the texts that we work with, and uh, we'll get around to a, uh, at least a bit of that here this morning. 
uh, the, the texts that I have brought with me to speak from today. Uh, basically, they kind of hopefully serve the purpose of causing questions to come up. Uh, specific questions, but the, the point of those questions really becomes, as opposed to our normal approach to that is we ask a question and we want a specific answer. It's really just to broaden our awareness of the practice, which sometimes, maybe more often than sometimes, maybe oftentimes, a specific answer can actually close off our understanding. So that, <laughs> that's why uh, you know, people can get frustrated with a practice like this because they feel like, well, I'm never getting any straight direct answers here. But that's the reason. We have to be careful with that uh, because the point of this practice is to open ourselves up, to let go, and to be aware constantly being aware rather than just going through life on autopilot the way we normally do. It's uh, that, and, and I'm going to get into that uh, with my own remarks this morning. That's really the, the great tragedy of our lives is to have something so precious that we go through on autopilot. It's like having something so rich in the parable from the Lotus Sutra about uh, uh, the person who is the son of a rich man that goes off wandering around and becomes uh, uh, just dirt poor uh, and has that sense of himself and uh, unbeknownst to him ends up back with his father who's very wealthy and the father recognizes him uh, but realizes he can't confront him with that truth of his true nature uh, right away because he's not ready for it. He has such a low regard for himself. So he actually sends him off to the stables to, to shovel horseshit initially because that was his view of himself. <laughs> so I said, we'll start there. I just want to keep him here. And then uh, gradually uh, got him to the point where he could make the announcement to him that, uh, that he's actually his, his only son. And, uh, and he said, I'm soon to pass from this world and all this vast uh, realm uh, will pass on to you. Well, actually, you know, the, the, what makes that a parable is that's true for all of us. If our basic existence is just that scenario. It's so rich. <laughs> it's like we all were born of, of parents who who have this uh, this vast wealth, and we're we're just born in. I mean, I'm, here I am in, with the the gift of life and and the ability to enjoy it. But how many people are constantly with that frame of mind and treasuring it 
and embodying that's a tragedy that we're, we all have lived out and uh, uh, and continue to live out. So to awaken, which is what Buddha means, is to awaken, is to realize uh, the riches that kind of like our birthright, just like this guy in the parable. It's the birthright of all. We all have that in common. You know, this competitive, uh, you know, self-centered attitude that really uh, is the key driver in our contemporary society. Uh, yeah, it has us even uh, with the material riches that we all currently have, feeling so inadequate compared to so much stuff. So it's never enough. Yeah, well, a long-winded response to a simple question. But in terms of you know, preparing one for the practice, uh, it's why, because of the richness of our existence, there is no pat response. It's simply... Everything we do is, is designed to open our eyes to that basic truth. And that's what makes it a practice rather than a set of dogmas or things where if you've got the right answers, you pass your exam, you're good. It's something we actually have to bring to our life day after day, moment after moment. We're awake. We get it. We've seen the nature of reality. And it enables us to take care of ourselves truly. True with a capital T. In accord with that reality and, and also all other beings at the very same time. Because we recognize and Sandokai, what we just chanted, talks about this. It's, it's the harmony of unity and difference. So we all are. We, we are all different. But yet we're also sometimes harmoniously one. And to, to see both sides of that. That's what Sandokai is about. Both of those sides. Our individual nature, and it is an individual practice. But then it's it's a practice with others. Both of us. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty rich. Pretty rich. We all sit on our own cushions doing our own practice, but uh, as as I Think you're already seeing uh, through three visits here that doing it with others, even though this morning it's mostly pixelated others, <laughs> but uh, uh, that is is a powerful part of the practice too. That we're not doing it alone, and in a very real sense, we are doing it with all other beings and. The, the ancestors, the Buddhas and ancestors, you know, without them, we wouldn't be doing this. 
So. Oh, we're off to a good start. <laughs> it's always nice when the newest person is the one who come, comes out with a question because those tend to be the best questions. <laughs> we tend to get right to the heart of it rather than get lost in these minutiae of teachings. And like, what's the purpose of Zen? <laughs> Somebody that's been with us for 10 years isn't going to be asking. <laughs> but that's the question that needs to be asked. So maybe, maybe that's covered our questions or areas of interest this morning. So if so, I, I do have something I had uh, actually run across yesterday that I figured uh, might be a good topic. And, and I think uh, actually ties in nicely with uh, the question you raised, which is, one of the reasons why I went off a little bit more, uh, just kind of self-serving purpose to set the stage for what I was going to talk about. So, uh, I had mentioned in an earlier Saturday morning talk about uh, this new work of scholarship that that uh, was published from uh, Shahaku Okimura uh, recently, Dogen Shobogen Zosuimont, and uh, mentioned that it would from time to time pop up uh, in Saturday morning talks. And since I'm just now still working my way through for a first reading of this, uh, it's it was more apt to, to come uh, sooner rather than later, I suppose. And there are six sections to it. I'm, I'm in uh, book three, three of the six. Uh, so nearing the midway point. And I'll just uh, read to you uh, the first part of this section, and then we'll, we'll take a deeper dive into it. In an evening talk, Dogen said, and the timing for these again is within the Dogen chronology. Uh, these talks were taking place very early on in his teaching career. Uh, they're in the mid 1230s. This predates the establishment of Eheji by uh, a decent number of years. Uh, so this is, and, and uh, these talks were, uh, were notated, uh, they're not based on Dogen's writing uh, of, of this subject, but rather his principal disciple, Ija, 
uh, took pretty good notes. And then uh, after Dogen's death, which would have been almost 20 years after this talk was given, Ijo went through all these notes he had and actually uh, uh, did some editorial work and, and put them together so that they could serve other uh, practitioners as well. So this is uh, the, the gist of this particular talk as notated by Egypt. And anciently marked, if I learn the way in the morning, I would not mind dying in the evening. Today's students of the way should have the same mental attitude. During eons of life and death, how many times have we been born and died in vain? By rare chance, we have been born in the human world and are able to encounter the Buddha Dharma. No matter what we do, eventually we must die. Even if in our mind, our self is dear to us, it is not possible to hold on to it. Giving up our lives, which we must leave behind sooner or later for the sake of the Buddha Dharma, if only for a day or a few moments, will surely be the cause of eternal bliss. It is regrettable to spend our days and nights vainly thinking of our livelihood tomorrow or some later time without casting aside the world that ought to be cast aside, without practicing the way that ought to be practiced. We should simply make up our mind to learn the way following the Buddha's intention, even if for just one day. So, kind of also uh, fits in nicely for us with our study of the uh, Oxford pictures. The, uh, the first uh, picture, uh, getting started on the way. And how seeing the preciousness of our life. And I've, I've been referencing the James Webb telescope, and, and I'll do it again because I think it's a powerful uh, tool for us uh, towards awakening, actually, in terms of this, this uh, long-running Buddhist practice of appreciating how special it is to be uh, born as a human. Now, in Dogen's time and in the Buddha's time, the original teachings were based on the six realms of existence. And the, the, uh, the hell dwellers and the hungry ghosts and the animals constituting the lower realms. And sometimes the fighting gods were also uh, designated as falling into that lower realm. And then uh, the human realm and the celestial uh, heavenly realm uh, being the two higher realms. So that was their frame of reference for how special it was to be born as a human. 
But now, and we didn't need James Webb for this, but, uh, but certainly uh, what that is opening up for us in terms of views of this vast universe uh, helps to push it even further along is an understanding of the universe and its vastness. And to gaze out in all the myriad directions at all of the stars and galaxies and clusters of galaxies that go back 16.8 billion years is our estimate for the age of this universe. And I was just reading that uh, just after uh, being fully operational for such a short period of time, they're already analyzing what they think may be uh, one of the first galaxies to ever form. It's dated, they can date it through the red shifting of, of light. Uh, the further away something is from us, the, the more red shifting takes place in its light spectrum, its spectroscopy. Uh, They've, they've discovered a galaxy that, that they can uh, calculate to be about 13.5 billion years old, that, that, that distance away from us, which means it came into existence about 300 million years after the so-called Big Bang. Uh, so very early on in the life of the universe. And so that's the extent to which we can see it, not only in all the directions, but going back to near the origins. Now, of course, we'd already detected through radio waves uh, the the uh, microwave background that was uh, we came to realize was actually the the trace that was left over from the Big Bang. So this is what we can actually dive in and actually experience. See with our own eyes and run through some scientific calculations, like our discovery of, of the red shifting of light, the further something is away from us, which demonstrates an expanding universe. And we get a pretty good view of the universe and the elements that make it up. And the takeaway from that is that. You know, we can kind of uh, figure out the, the pr principal elements in the universe, yeah. foundational elements. Hydrogen, of course, being uh, element number one, followed by helium. So the more, the further we look out into the universe, the more we should realize how precious our existence is 
We are the universe gifted with sentience that can actually look at itself. Have self-awareness. Now, we think of that in terms of child psychology and the stages uh, of, of development as a human being from birth uh, through infancy into childhood and the development of self-awareness. Well, we can take that and apply that to the universe. We're an example of that for the universe. Self-awareness. And it is gift. Phenomenal. That we all are individually, as I was saying, but yet we're together. We're only here because we're all part of that universe. The elements that created us, that created this planet and our sun and our solar system, just so. So we're in orbit in that Goldilocks zone that supports our lives. So we're alone, but definitely not. Definitely not. How precious is that? And relate that then to what generally gets our attention. <laughs> and that's what Dogen is talking about here. Is you're really missing the great treasure. That you don't have to acquire vast wealth and have wonderful possessions. Have a hundred thousand dollar car to drive, a million dollar home, although given the change in housing prices, even that in some places won't get you much. But here in the Cleveland area, it still <laughs> will, will serve you pretty nicely. It's madness. It really is crazy. That's what Dogen's talking about. So even just for one day or one moment to have that light go off, to recognize. And for us, having a practice like this. So we venerate the, the Buddhas and ancestors because Without them, we wouldn't have this ready-made path to follow. And of course, we each follow it and create our own path within that best path. But they're guidance to us. What a treasure that is. To have that awareness, to awaken to that and have that in mind when we're getting pulled by societal norms that are telling us what we should value. 
Don't be so easily pulled in by it. Be very clear for yourself what you should value at the most basic level. Value your life and the lives of all others because they're all so very precious. Beyond any price. And we're so caught up in it. Everything is monetary. Jeez. To, to, to have and to hold. <laughs> to have and to hold. As opposed to to be able to have and to hold, not as an individual, but collectively. And just to give you a concrete example of that is you know, my daily walk in the park. It's like it's my park. That doesn't mean in, in some self-centered way. It's my park along with everybody else that wants to go walk there. And that's what makes it so precious. It's way more precious to my mind than if it was just my park. I never know who I'll run into, although there are the regulars there, and we kind of form the Euclid Creek Sangha. <laughs> but we always knew people. Always. So who needs a vast expanse of property when to, to have it in common is a far richer experience rather than this is mine. It calls to my mind uh, one of my favorite scenes from a Woody Allen film, uh, Love and Death, his take on uh, uh, the great Russian novels of the 19th century. Uh, and there's this, I think there was an uncle to the uh, Woody Allen character uh, who had his, his property. And it was actually just a clump of dirt in a box. And it, was his, it was his land. <laughs> and he was so, you know, that, that was meant everything. <laughs> and carry that box around with him. I thought that was such a beautiful depiction of how we, the absurd sense we in our accumulations, in what we claim is ours, and the madness of it. That was obviously his uncle was kind of mad. <laughs> He wasn't really in his right frame of mind. But it was a beautiful way of saying, you know, as a society, we're really kind of a little nutty. So fortunately, there are paths like Zen 
that can awaken us from that. To really appreciate what we have. It was given to us. Un unearned, undeserved. That doesn't even enter into it. We all have it. That's that core Zen teaching. We all have or are Buddha nature. But some took that in a different direction that Dogen was strongly opposed to. There was this uh, school of, of Buddhist thought that uh, taught original enlightenment. That we're all originally enlightened. And Dogen uh, had some pretty strong things to say about that. Dogen, as I uh, come back to from time to time, indicated that practice is enlightenment. That without practice, even though we are Buddha nature, uh, without the awakening, then uh, there's no enlightenment. There's no uh, ability to fully receive the gift that we have. Hence the power of that Lotus Sutra paradigm of the uh, the son of, of the rich man that Hakuin references in his uh, Zazen Wa Song, Song of Zazen, that's in our chamber. We have to awaken to that thing. And that's practice. Practice, practice, practice. Because our normal everyday life is bringing us into regular contact with forces that take us in a very different direction. And in my sense is those forces, because of the development of technology, uh, are, are creating such a tidal wave of delusion that, that's, you know, I think. And, and one, one uh, early doctrine within Buddhism that Dogen takes up time after time in this text, certainly, is the different ages of Buddhism. The, the first age being where people are, are hearing the teachings and they're receptive to them and they're, they're, uh, they're actually actively practicing. And then with each successive stage, there's uh, a diminishment until the final stage, it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's all done. <laughs> yeah, so people even back, Back in that in Dogen's time, we're thinking that they were either in that final stage or quickly approaching. So there's been that tendency to, to just uh, be very disheartened 
by the state of the world relative to this kind of spiritual awakening that's been around for a long time. And uh, you know, it's, it would certainly be understandable to have that view now. But Dogen uh, was, was always sharply responsive to that in terms of uh, don't get caught up in, in those kinds of notions. The importance is your practice right here and now. It's not about what age we're Whatever the impediments are, practice that urgency that he's laying out in this segment from the uh, Shabbat Genzo's Wimati. The urgency, you know, practicing as the saying goes, like your hair is on fire. It's that vital that you have to do it. You don't think about it. That's the point of that analogy. If your hair is on fire, you're going to get it extinguished. It's an immediate response. That's practice. To be in, in a society and whatever it was, whether it was in 1236 or 2022, it's completely out of whack with this vast picture of our existence, of, of reality as it is, to be wrapped in delusion, trapped in delusion, wrapped and trapped in delusion, to be able to get through that and to understand what's really important, what's really the vital matter. Or as the closing of Sandel Khan puts it, for those who would study the great mystery, don't waste time. Practice like your hair's on fire. Practice like you have to do this. So that's what I wanted to share this morning. Open the floor once again. I do. Um, I guess uh, what, what what I keep getting stuck on and been getting stuck on since I first started coming, and we were we were 
doing Katagiri's book on Uji, and now I have the Shinshu Roberts book that I'm about to start. And when you're talking about the James Webb telescope and, and how far <laughs> back in time we're, we're seeing, and just how unfathomable 13.5 billion years is. And, and I just, I, 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 I often feel like I understand Uji and the concept of time that, that it lays out. And then the, the Zen concept of no time, uh, but I still feel like it's a philosophical discussion. And in my day-to-day -day life, I'm living in the same old linear time that I've always lived in. I, I don't, so I don't know. I guess if you could talk on, is there, do you, do you, I don't know if the, not having the object to drop off body, mind and time, but is time something that does kind of drop off or that, is an illusion and that uh that's just one aspect of suchness or whatever the, the loss of time yeah yeah because we do all of us i think have experiences of the dropping off of time when all of a sudden we lose that sense of time so that actually generally coincides with the dropping off of body and mind because they're all fabrications. So they're fabrications that serve a purpose. And this is to, to answer uh, about the, the use of linear time. You know, without it, uh, uh, I'd be here by myself. There'd be nobody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we kind of need to, to sync up schedules and so on and so forth. Uh, so linear time is very, very helpful. But what Dogen's, uh, uh, one of the things he's getting across with Uji is that time don't limit it to just our our uh, limited view of time and the separation of past, present, and future and our one directional sense of the flow of time, that rather, you know, he's cracking that thing wide open. And to, to, to take time and, uh, and to, to see it as, intimately connected to impermanence, another core Buddhist teaching. Without change, there's no time. Time only exists to, to measure change, things moving, changing position. If everything was unchanging, unmoving, there'd be no time. So start there, and then you know, enter into Uji, and uh, it's it's simply trying to open your mind around time and to see where we get caught up by it, and. 
kind of uh, the way Nagar Nagarjuna won uh, in terms of of uh, of self existence. You know, Nagarjuna being the great philosopher of, of emptiness, he would show uh, the contradictions you run into with the notion of self-existence. And you might say that Dogen is kind of doing something similar with, with our six notions of time, that ultimately, you know, they serve a useful purpose. They're pragmatic, like I was suggesting in terms of our ability to come together, so on and so forth. But when we get caught up in senses of past, present, and future, for instance, in terms of, of our practice, to be able, because we could look at, at ways of approaching our practice that are future-oriented, like being born in, reborn in the Pure Land, as opposed to seeing the Pure Land right here and now. And to see how right here and now is, is incorporating the past and the future, where it all comes together right here and now. And as I think it was just Thursday, you know, I had occasion to, to allude just in passing to Einstein's uh, uh, contribution to our our uh, understanding of time and how that's kind of following in the path of Dogen Zuji. You know, Einstein uh, removed time from our uh, traditional sense of absolute time. You know, there's past, there's present, there's future, and there's this sense of passage through time. And we it used to be very commonplace, even in science, to see that as just an absolute. That was part of reality, was this sense of time. And of course, now with Einstein, at least the scientific community has, has removed itself from that and seen that our ex experience of time is relative to different things pertaining to, to impermanence, to change. The traveling, and and what speed are you traveling? And so, so if you're traveling uh, at speeds approaching the speed of light, time is <laughs> is much different. And that's the the thought experiment where you come back to Earth uh, in in what for you seems like a couple of minutes, and you're actually in the next century or two. <laughs> So he kind of helps to, to crack that open a little bit more in terms of our sense of absolute time, linear time, as we used to get. So they're, they're much more fluid now. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Jeff? Um, I... I agree with you, Keith. Um, I, I've been kind of hung up on this issue for a long time myself, for a long time, right? Um, but something that helped me when, when somewhere in being time, um, 
was written, I'll, I'll paraphrase that um, there, there is no past. The past is behind us, it's gone forever. There's no future, it's not here yet. There's only ever the present moment. And in that present moment, because there is only ever the present moment, that includes the past and that includes the future. So it's all here right now. And, and I, I guess how that helped me think about myself, you know, what does time mean to me that if I focus on that, I'm, I'm thinking that if I can be the, the best version of me right now here in this present moment, always in this present moment, that takes care of the future. And it becomes the past quickly also. So that takes care of the past. So I'm living in the present moment thinking about that kind of perspective of how to look at time. And I don't know what Einstein thinks about that. <laughs> That's a good way of saying it. I can put my mind. I, I never had a dream about flying next to a beam of light. So little do I know. <laughs> No, uh, but to take what you mapped out one step further, the emptiness of time, because time is simply empty, it doesn't have any self-existence, is uh, to, if we look closely at the present, it's also a fabrication because it's, it's just fleeting. This is the, the, the real hardcore truth of impermanence, that the present, as soon as you, know, you reach out to turn it into something, it's gone. It's, it's never, there, there's no, literally no staying power to it. It's, it's just slime. And uh, yeah, there have been, uh, theories, and this even goes back to, to early Buddhism that, well, it's, it's chopped up, it's almost like the atomic view of time, that there is a, a finite amount of time, very short, but there's this discrete sense of, of moments, you know, what is a moment? Uh, and that would become like the present. But but that also generates some, some, some paradoxes. So uh, ultimately, just to see time as this continue, continuous uh, structure, that it's, not, there's nothing discrete there. It's just movement. So it kind of comes back to a statement uh, I, I sometimes make about, uh, about uh, being as a verb, because we hear being like the present is, and we think it is a thing. We turn it into something, but it's a verb like everything is. It's nothing but activity. And activity in terms of time, that's when the whole thing collapses, including the present, because like I just said, you know, the present, there's nothing there if you really look at it. But you're right. I mean, that's to, to fold the past and the future into it. That's a natural and that's easy to get. 
that the future only exists for me right now. What am I doing because of my uh, anticip anticipation of a future, trying to prepare for it, and so on and so forth. And the past, you know, how it conditions me. And Buddhism certainly believes in conditioning. But it's, it's to be able to take those concepts of anticipation and conditioning, but to remove them from this delusion of things actually existing as things and to see them as nothing but, uh, you know, this is where I think uh, the Einstein view of the universe can be helpful, just constant motion, energy in motion. And uh, to look at views like the James Webb and see that as just energy in motion, starting with that initial uh, uh, Big Bang uh, energy in motion and continuing to, to this experience right here, right now. So it's just different worldviews, but, 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 and this is the importance of, of these two core uh, truths of Buddhism of impermanence and no self nature. So when we study emptiness, whether it's in a diamond sutra or the heart sutra, it's pointing to that. And uji then is really just the emptiness of time. It can, it, I think it can best be seen in that light. And what does that entail if we see it uh, through that lens as being empty of self-nature? I think that's really what what Uji is about. It's kind of like the Heart Sutra of Time. Because practicing with emptiness uh, is really, it's a process. It really is a practice because we'll find ourselves getting caught with, with, with a sense of, of self, self-nature of something. It's so deeply ingrained in us that to strip it all away is, is too radical to take in, generally speaking, and in one dose. <laughs> so it's a prescribed dosage. You have to kind of go through it in stages for most people. And then part of the practice is to see, and a lot of the koans are geared towards this, to see where one is getting caught in a sense of, of self-nature. And to see is to awaken, to, to wake up, to be able to pass through that gate.
but then there'll be the next gate because it's it's ingrained. Very, very deeply. Because if we think back all our previous conditioning, it's about things, our whole language. We're very linguistic beings, and our language is all built around things, objects. It's not good enough just to have the conceptual idea that won't do the trick in and of itself. We have to really have, have this change in perspective. So our relationship, and maybe a good parallel to this is, is the sense people do have sometimes about the uh, the uh, uh, ridiculous aspect of accumulating things because there's no escaping impermanence in terms of our own mortality. And that kind of sheds a light on the futility of accumulating things because they're in, our, our possession of those is very impermanent. So it's like, well, how valuable is that? Or we don't even have to die. How fragile are those things? We could have a, a beautiful house, but especially in our age of global warming, how, how able is that to withstand you know, some of the forces that the fires and the floods and so on, that, that they're going to be subject to. So the sense of impermanence does, even for uh, non-practicing beings, it kind of hammers a message across, <laughs> slowly but surely. And that's why, and this is a, another uh, circling back to Shobogenzo's We Monkey. This is a core teaching of Dogen in these early uh, uh, talks of his, is about impermanence and the importance of practicing with that basic truth and its relationship to non self nature, no self nature. Uh, but that that view that uh, that, that Joe uh, laid out about collapsing past and future into the present, I think, and speaking uh, personally, you know, I, I certainly use that uh, pretty heavily myself in my practice with time. That's an important step along that process. 
is it begins kind of to collapse to see the truth that there is only the present. That the past is a fabrication, the future is a fabrication. Because that's the easier step. The more challenging step is to see the present as a fabrication. <laughs> Best to save that one. <laughs> that sure, sure worked better for me, it still does. <laughs> It's now we're really skating on thin ice. <laughs> skating on thin time. <laughs> Very thin. The thinnest slice. <laughs> but that's what the present comes down to. How much weight will it support? But then to, to also come back to, to how Joe was, was taking uh, his approach is you know, to, to kind of cut through the delusion of time and the sense of, of the future being something separate, the past being separate. Uh, you know, there's valuable prajna there about taking care of this moment, you know, what's arising right now. It's, so it's really most of the heavy lifting really, I think, gets accomplished by the collapsing of, of past and future. And then we get down to just uh, uh, kind of the, the nitty gritty details about making sure that we don't uh, allow any of the remaining debris uh, to take on the, the, the role of some ultimate substance by which we're, we're going to get hooked, which the present could turn into. But this truth of the value of taking care of what's right in front of you, if we just completely dis dismiss that, then we're, I think, you know, full throttle into the realm of, of nihilism. But the fact that that's where really where we take care of everything is right here. Even though this right here doesn't have any, any uh, uh, substance to it, but, but we're not looking for, for substance. We have to come, come around to that. That, that what we're caring for is really everything. And that's when we leave the realm of substance, that you know, this and that and that, that everything we take care of is taking care of everything. Otherwise, you know, we we're back to taking care of individual things. 
taking care of this present. So actually, within time, taking care of this present is taking care of everything, right? Past, future, that's uh, that's uh, exactly what Joe was, was pointing to, and I think that's right. But that then also kind of collapses the present. There is no present, it's just we're taking care of everything. So that's to really awaken to this universal nature of all things. But we can only get there with that total collapse. And we're, we're there. It's, it sort of fits in with the collapse of our senses. No eyes, no ears, no nose. Sure does. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. As Jerry Lee Lewis would say, a whole lot of collapsing going on. <laughs> Might be another project for us to redo some old song lyrics. The Zen song. <laughs> Make some creative co contributions to Zen in the 21st century. <laughs> Bring it up to date. Anything else? I'm pretty good. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. All right.